for the last uh, few months, we've been talking about the contemplative journey, and that is so critical. Uh, the, the effect is based on two pillars. One is understanding Jesus from a first century Hebrew-Aramaic point of view, because that changes everything in terms of the message that he is actually giving us. And secondly, when you do understand him from that point of view, you realize that he was a mystic and a contemplative, that is someone who practices just pure being, and connected being to being, spirit to spirit, presence to presence, um, to to God, rather than word-based and intellectually. And so the second pillar that we rest on is contemplative practice, being able to actually put that into place in our own lives. Because until we act on it, until it becomes a part of our lives, nothing really changes. You know, that old old adage, you you can think your way into right acting or act your way into right thinking. But the truth of the matter is, we act our way into right thinking. Now, the thinking can give us the framework, the paradigm, the doorway, but it's the action that actually takes us through, and it's the action that heals us, that changes ingrained belief systems and obsessive-compulsive thoughts and, and behavior patterns. And so it is the action, it is the contemplative work that not, is not just relegated to you know, quiet time and meditation and centering prayer but seamlessly throughout our lives. So we've been trying to get a taste of that. We've been trying to work on what are the, the natural barriers to us as modern Westerners to being able to put this into practice in our lives. And uh, that's been the substance of uh, the last few weeks and couple months. And I wanted to continue that today because I think there's another angle. There's always more angles that we can look at this. And if we you know, put enough of these angles or facets together and we get the, the whole picture, and we can finally see, oh, okay, this is how it works. This is why it's important. And this is why it would be important to me. That would be the impetus for us to finally overcome the inertia, right? The resistance to actually putting this in place in our lives ourselves. And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, I wanted to start by just backing up a little bit and taking another look at Jesus, who is our center. He's the one who's showing us this way, this way that he talks about. And it's important to understand it's a way. The first century followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way, not followers of Jesus. But they understood that if they didn't practice this way of living life, this way of loving and relating that Jesus was giving them, then nothing was going to happen. So after 30 years of studying Jesus, I've read more and more and mostly, and it's still coming, you know, uh, of picturing Jesus as a political or social revolutionary. And that's, a, that's an easy thing to imagine him as because of the way he works with the marginalized, because of the way that he, he works with women and children and those who are marginalized in that culture. As a social justice warrior, perhaps we could say, that Jesus is portrayed and imagined in these roles. But I disagree with that. I don't see Jesus working that way. Because Jesus is unwaveringly micro in his approach. He's not working from the top down. He's working from the bottom up. He's working with individual hearts. He's working with individual lives, one life at a time. Whatever life is in front of him, whatever person is in front of him, he is all in. He is completely present. He is always working with that person. And whenever political power was offered to him, the mantle was laid on his shoulders, he always rejected it. He always slipped back out of it. He did not stay in that place. In fact, you could say that Jesus was pretty much apolitical. 
If you went to him with a political question, you went to him with a politi- trying to put him on a political side, he always found a beautiful and artful way to bring it back to the essential question. It's not about this issue that you're bringing to me. What is your personal response to this issue that you're bringing to me? That is what's going to make the difference in your life, in the lives of everyone you touch, and eventually our community. But it starts from inside out. It starts from the bottom up. So he's apolitical. And not only that, if you really look at his M.O., he's kind of politically illiterate. (laughs) He does not play the game. He never plays the political game. First of all, he always tells the truth. So right off the bat, he's lost it as a politician, right? I mean, you think what a politician is. A politician is someone who absolutely needs to please as many people as possible so that they can retain their power, right? And so they're, they're going to try to say what everybody wants to hear as much as possible, except for the, the side or the group that they know is never going to ever support them. And then it's okay to just trash them because that's actually throwing red meat to those who are going to support you, right? And so it's all about leveraging one power group against another. It's about pandering. It's about doing all the things that we see politicians doing. And if you think our politicians are so bad, there's no difference. They were the same way in the first century. They're the same way in the 21st century. It's just now they have TikTok to deal with and all these other kinds of things. So they can, they got a bigger megaphone. But otherwise, it's exactly the same. Jesus did not play political games. Jesus just told the truth as he saw it to whoever was in front of him. He was an equal opportunity offender, but he also recognized and celebrated truth from wherever it came. Now, if you think about the two most hated groups to first century Jews, you can't do better than the Romans and the Samaritans. The Romans were the oppressors, the occupiers. They were the ones who had the cruel tax and were occupying their their land. And the Samaritans were the half-breeds, the ones that that they they could not stand because they, they didn't accept the entirety of their books. They worshipped in a different place and in a different way, and so they were half-breeds. And those two groups, and yet what does Jesus do? When a centurion comes to him and asks him to heal his servant, Jesus remarks that he's never seen such faith in all of Israel than he sees in this Roman centurion, this hated person of power. And then when he wants to talk about what really love and neighborhood is, what our, who our neighbor is, he pulls out a Samaritan as the ideal of someone who is practicing true love and true neighborliness. And when he's in Samaria, he sits with a Samaritan woman and talks to her at the well. Jews didn't do that. They didn't talk to women at all in public, let alone a Samaritan woman. His friends are outraged you know, that he's doing this, but he just rebuffs them and sends them into the village to get supplies while he continues to have his conversation with her. You know. Samaritans, centurions, women, children, who are basically property in first century Judea, they couldn't help his political stance if they wanted to. And yet he spent their time, his time with them, with women, with children. And when it came to the Jewish authorities, he had the harshest words for them. The ones who could actually help him politically were the ones that he came against over and over and over again. Eventually, Jesus ended up offending everybody, even and especially his own followers. When he tried to really push them into the next levels of his message and this way, this life, 
He lost many of his followers. The imagery that he used was just too much for them. Eat my body, drink my blood. They couldn't handle that. But they weren't thinking past the literal. They weren't able to do that yet. But he risked it anyway. Because for those he could bring along, it was worth losing the others who were not yet ready. And so he spoke truth. He didn't back down. And he imagined, you know, managed to (laughs) offend everybody. Speaking the truth, committing political suicide everywhere he went, basically. Now, how do you explain this? It seems to our mind that if Jesus really wanted to start a church, if Jesus really did want to start a movement, that he would use the levers of power as they were presented to him. But that was never Jesus' intent. He never wanted to start a church. He wanted to heal the hearts of the people in the system in which he was planted, in which he grew up, was born and raised within Judaism. He tried so hard to do exactly that. And Jesus isn't stupid. Of course he understands politics. Of course he understands the game. But he is intent on setting individual hearts free. That's what he's about, not leveraging groups for power. And so when we look at Jesus, try to look at Jesus as a political revolutionary. He fails miserably. If we want to look at him as a social justice warrior, and we say, well, Jesus always stood with the marginalized. Jesus always stood with those who were at the edges of society, those who were poor, those who were disenfranchised, those who had nothing. We have to remember that Jesus stood with anyone and everyone who stood with him. Whoever the person was in front of him, he was standing with that person. He was giving him, her, everything that he had to give. He cared about everyone equally. There was not one group that was favored over another. Whoever he was with was his new best friend. Whoever he was with was worthy of everything that he had to give. Whether that person was rich. Remember Zacchaeus, little short rich guy up in the tree? Come down, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. Zacchaeus couldn't believe it, right? Or Levi, Matthew, the tax gatherer at the toll booth. Come, follow me can't believe it. He's rich, but he's hated because he's a Roman collaborator as a tax gatherer. With someone who is powerful. How about Nicodemus? Comes to him at night, embarrassed, with the prayer shawl over his face, so no one can see that he's coming to talk to Jesus, but Jesus gives him that beautiful conversation in John 3. Jesus was seen through all of the categories into which we put people and just seeing the person that was with him at the time. A woman, a child, a Roman, a Samaritan, rich, poor. Jesus stood with them all. And yet he was born and raised in Galilee, which to someone in New York would be like southern Alabama, maybe. You know, it was the other side of the tracks. It was the back of beyond. It were the hicks, you know. That's what Galilee was to those who lived in Judea, and especially those who were in Jerusalem. That's where he was born and raised, in Nazareth. Remember Nathaniel? First thing he says when his friend says, you've got to come hear Jesus from Nazareth. He's in Nazareth. Does anything good ever come out of Nazareth? You know? Not a good reputation. Well, Jesus was born and raised there, among the poor, among the rural people. Right? That was his home base. So, of course, he spent more time with them. That was home for him. 
And that's who was there at the time. But when he went into Judea, when he went into the city, whether it was a Roman city or whether it was a Jewish city, he was equally at home there and equally effusive there, equally engaged there. Now, if we want to say that Jesus spent more time with the marginalized, which is true, think about it. The marginalized, the least invested in the current system, right? Those with the least to lose are always the most open to change, aren't they? When you've got nothing left to lose, when you are not part of the system anyway, aren't you the most open for change? It's those who are most invested, who have the most to lose that are going to hang on tooth and nail to what they've got and to the status quo. That's the way it is. That's just human nature. That's the way it always is. And so Jesus' message of radical transformation is going to resonate with those who are looking for change in the first place. And those are the people who came to him. Those are the people who followed him. And it's also why for us, sometimes we say we need to hit bottom. Well, we don't necessarily need to hit bottom, but we certainly need to go through the process of stripping away everything we think we're invested in everything we think we have and everything we're clinging to for control and for power and for survival and all the other things that we cling to throughout our lives, that has to be stripped away. Well, if life has already done it for us, hey, we're further down the road. We're more ready to hear what Jesus has to offer when what Jesus has to offer is a radical departure from everything that is. So most of Jesus' work was with the poor, with the unlawful, those who stood outside the Jewish law, with the sick who were disenfranchised, who were basically excommunicated from society because they were sick, with women, with children, with outcasts because they chose him back. But he treated everyone equally. He loved everyone equally. He looks like a social champion because of this. But I think his intent is something different if you really look under the hood, if you really look more deeply. Now, casting Jesus as a social justice warrior standing with the poor, I think, misses the point. But more importantly, it points us in the wrong direction if our intent is to follow Jesus more perfectly. The implication here is that, of course, we need to be social justice warriors as well. We hold that up. We need to be social activists of some sort for the poor and for the marginalized. We need to identify with their suffering in order to be able to be close to Jesus. And this has been something that also has traveled with us through the millennia and is very loud right now in many social circles, Christian circles, that drumbeat for us to be a social justice warrior for the poor and the disenfranchised. But the truth is, is that the rich suffer too. And in many ways, they, maybe they suffer more, at least more in the real ways that we suffer as human beings. And what did Jesus say? He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because of the blockages and the impediments, the investment in the status quo and in wealth that blocks them from being able to see what's really going on. Jesus bloomed right where he was planted. We've got to see this. Wherever he was, he bloomed. Whomever he was with, he bloomed too. He was exactly the same person wherever he was, and whoever he was talking to, there was no difference in him. 
This is a key for us to see. At John 3.16, when, John is, when uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and the famous verse, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, you know, the, one of the most famous verse, verses in the New Testament. But that phrase, only begotten son, is really interesting. The word that is translated as only begotten, which we think of as having just an only child, right? Ihidaya in Aramaic really means single, it means solitary, or most importantly, it means united in all aspects of being. Now, you can translate it, and it could be used for an only child. But in this case, I think it's a mistranslation. I think it misses the point of what the word is trying to get across. Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he is the son of unity. God was unity to the Hebrews and to the Jews, the perfect oneness. Jesus was the son of that oneness, the son of that unity. He was united in all aspects of his being. Everything about him, from his thoughts to his words to his deeds, everything was completely integrated. He was the completely integrated, integrated, integrated. I'll get it right eventually. Integrated human being. He was the son of unity. That's really what God is giving us. He is giving us, he so loved the world that he gave his own unity in human form, completely integrated, so that anyone who could trust, follow that unity, can have this life that we're so after, the freedom to have this life. That's the sense of John 3.16. And that's our model. That's really our promise. Not what we can do, in terms of who we serve, how we love, but really, instead of a specific thing to do, it's how we do everything we do because our essential being has changed, transformed from the inside out. So it's not putting our efforts in one specific area that makes the difference. It's becoming this person who will put our efforts into anyone and anything that presents at the moment. That's our model. That's our promise of good news. And that changes everything. A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I talked to you about um, someone I was talking to, their mother-in-law retired with her father-in-law to Las Vegas. Seven years later, she died. And when they went back for the funeral, she was shocked at how many people were at the funeral. Just hundreds of people were there. And all the way down to store clerks and, uh, and, and uh, you know, food servers, they all knew her. They all had connected with her. In seven years in a city the size of Las Vegas, what was this woman eating? Yeah, I want to know. It's amazing that she was able to do that. But she wasn't working at it. She wasn't thinking, oh, I better be nice to the table servers and to the, you know, the clerks so that they'll be at my funeral. It was that she was just this person. Wherever she went, she connected with people. Wherever she went, she looked at them and they saw that she saw them. She made this incredible impression because she left people feeling better than she found them at every encounter. It's who she was. Wherever she was, whoever she was with. We talk a lot about Brother Lawrence in here, 16th century French monk, who was relegated to the kitchen when he first 
started his monastic life and was upset about that because he wanted to do monk things in the chapel. But after some years, he realized God was just as present as he was turning the cake in the frying pan and the smoke was coming up and everybody was shouting for this and for that and the smells and the heat and the sweat. But that's where he was of service. And he realized God was just as present, even more present there than elsewhere because he was of service. And he developed the seamless and continuous practice of the presence of God. Wherever he was, it was the same. There was no difference. He said, we don't have to invent ways of coming at God. We just do what we do all day long, but with God's presence in mind, the awareness of God's presence, and everything changes. This is what we're talking about, to be that integrated, to be the same person with the same presence wherever we are and whoever we're with. Somehow these people managed to do that, to become integrated, united in all their aspects of being. We can ask how. How did they do this? How do they manage this? And Jesus says there's only one way. There's only one way to the Father. And that is that we must come to the end of ourselves as we imagine ourselves to be. Jesus says, follow my way and you will find the truth that will make you free. He also said, you've got to pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. He said, you've got to hate your father and mother and your brother and sister and even your own life if you want to follow me. This is coming to the end of ourselves as we imagine ourselves to be. To not hold anything as sacred cows that are going to ultimately be blocking us from what is really in front of us right now. The person, the relationship, the opportunity to exercise the love that Jesus was talking about. It's just this one way to find a deeper identity that is the same wherever we go. We're not changing faces the way the politicians and the hypocrites do for the group that we're with. We are the same person, that same person that can love the person that's right in front of them. For the last uh, two and a half years, I've been working for a pediatric hospital, um, Chalk in Orange and in Mission, uh, Mission Viejo, uh, as a counselor for the staff, for the associates, uh, the, uh, the medical staff, providers, and so on and so forth. And I was asked to uh, present to one of their, um, they call it M&M, morbidity and mortality. It's where they review what is going on, and they had a, a death of a child. Actually, the kid came in um, coded already, um, but they needed to deal with it. And it was particularly tragic, and it was really hard on the staff. And they asked me to speak on coping with the death of a child. You know, how do you do that, right? But I started with a story that I want to tell you and, and just kind of run down a little bit of what we talked about because I think it pertains here as well. I told them that there was a story that came out of China and a wealthy man asks a Zen master to prepare for him a calligraphy, prepare for him a text that he can hang on the wall that will always remind him of how much he loves his family how much he enjoys his time with his family. And the master agrees and goes away for a period of time and kind of comes back with this beautiful calligraphy. And the man takes it and he reads it, and this is what it says. The father dies. The son dies. The grandson dies. Now, how would you feel if you got a calligraphy like that? 
from your master. Well, he was outraged. He was angry. He was furious. How can you do this to me? I asked you for something that would inspire me, remind me of my love, and you give me this? And the master stays calm, and he just replies to him. He says, this is the blessing that I wish for your family. If you lost a son, it would be devastating to you and your family. If your grandson died, it would be unbearable. But if your family disappears in just this order, you will be blessed, and your family will continue. See, there's a natural order to things. And if the natural order is followed, yes, any death, any loss is difficult, but it's the one that comes out of order. It's the one that we cannot explain. It doesn't make any sense. That just drives the stakes so deep. Now, for pediatric nurses, they're choosing a profession where all day long they're going to be experiencing out-of-order deaths. That's what they have chosen to do. How do they reconcile that? How, do they, how are they able to deal with the fact that they're always going to be in what we can call a tragic gap? The tragic gap is the gap between the way things are and the way that we think that they should be. The gap between those two things is all the room we need to be absolutely anguished, miserable, angry, frustrated, all the things that happen in that space. We can also call it a limit situation. And I, and I like this idea. See if it works for you. A limit situation is any situation, any sequence of events that takes us to the end of ourselves, takes us to the limit of our ability to control the situation, or more importantly, to control the outcome. We are literally at the precipice. We are at the end of any ground that we can occupy. We're at the end of any control that we can exercise. The limit situation takes us right there to this place of total vulnerability, of total powerlessness to change the situation or the outcome. We hate vulnerability, don't we? Come on, be honest. We don't like powerless much, powerlessness much either, do we? And so what we're going to want to do is we're always going to want to rebuild our defenses. We find ourselves in a situation like this. It's smacked us in the face. It's taken the breath out of our lungs. We can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense. And we know that we can't do anything about it, yet we're going to try by at least searching for answers. We're going to try to find some answers. We're going to try to find a way to understand what is going on, because if we can understand it, we can have the illusion of some kind of control over it, right? And some kind of control over the outcome. And so, I don't know if you remember, uh, it was last year, uh, a little boy was shot on the freeway after a road rage incident between his mother and, a, and another driver in another car. Actually, it wasn't the driver, it was a passenger. And they had gotten into this argument where they were cutting each other off anyway. Well, the, the passenger of the other car takes out a gun and shoots at her car. And her six-year-old boy was in the car seat in the back, and he was the one who was hit. And he ended up at Chuck's emergency room. And, of course, there was nothing that they could do. They tried. I had the privilege of being able to talk to many of the ED staff afterwards, and, and they were just devastated because it was so senseless. A road rage accident, and he shoots blindly into a car and kills this boy. You know, it was so senseless. It was just so 
absolutely abhorrent to every kind of sensibility. Talk about being in the tragic gap. Talk about hitting a limit situation. But as I talked to them, there was a lot of anger as well. Who is the anger directed at? Well, predictably, of course, at the shooter, but also at the mother for escalating the road rage until it resulted in some kind of violence. And see, for us to be angry, that's something that at least we can do emotionally. And to blame is to deflect the anguish that we're feeling outward someplace. At least we can let it go someplace. It's something for something in a situation where there just doesn't seem to be any sense at all. Just last month, a three-month-old came in, and the parents had put the three-month-old and her one-year-old brother together in the crib, and the one-year-old rolled over on the three-month-old and, so, and smothered her. And so the came, she came in, she was non-responsive, pupils dilated. There was really nothing anybody could do. And in having a debrief afterwards, they were saying, again, here was that anger at the parents, blaming the parents. They should know better. Well, some of it was cultural, and there was this, and there was that, but they should know better. That, that desire to come up with something, some kind of answer that you can hang your hat on. I talked to a physician, a surgeon, who lost a 14-year-old uh, on the table, and as I talked to him, he was just going over and over. Talk about that morbidity and mortality I was just telling you about, where you, you, you go through everything. He was doing that to me on the phone, going through everything from the start to the finish, using words and phrases that I didn't even understand, because he was going way down into the weeds of everything that he did as a surgeon. And he said he'd been doing this over and over in his mind every moment, every day since it happened, trying to come up with some sort of reason, some sort of rational answer for what happened. Even though he did nothing wrong, stuff just happens sometimes, and we have no answer for it. And it puts us in that limit situation. It puts us right in that tragic gap. What puts you in a limit situation? What puts you in a tragic gap? Are you even aware of the times that you are in these positions? Is it an illness maybe that takes you there? I mean, let's think about Nina right now. Finds out three months ago she's got stage four ovarian cancer. And what's that going to do to your head? How are you going to process that? How are you going to deal with all the questions, both existential, spiritual, religious questions, as well as practical questions, as well as dealing with your your house, your children, and all the things that come up when you're hit with something of that magnitude. But even lesser illnesses, the ones that Marion was praying for at the break today, all those illnesses can take us there. Our children can take us there. Just talking yesterday to a woman whose adult son is just back into his addiction. You know, doesn't know where he is. Is he in the hospital? Is he in jail? You know, limit situation. She cannot control, but she's still trying to. She wants to with everything in her. But our children can take us there. Addiction can take us there. Finances can take us there. Talking about yesterday, someone whose home is being foreclosed, and they got to be out in record time, and where are they going to rent in a place like this? You know, limit situation, the tragic gap. How did this happen? Why did this happen? It can be a job loss. It can be world events. That's something that was really taking hold during the pandemic. All the events that were happening, everyone freaking out, 
everyone outraged by what's going on, and yet zero control. What are you going to do about it? Right? Now, the truth is that when we really hit these kind of situations, there is no rational answer to them. There is no emotional answer to them. We can get angry, we can blame, but that's not going to be an answer that is going to really satisfy the deeper questions, the existential questions that a tragic gap is going to raise inside of all of us. There is no answer that we can just lay down that's going to make everything better. The truth is, life itself is a tragic gap, isn't it? (laughs) Every day, don't you look around and feel that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? And it just seems to be getting more and more so as we move along these last few months and years. We're always questioning the way things are. And really, this is a form of moral distress. And moral distress is something that is really big in healthcare because healthcare providers are always faced with moral distress. What's that? Well, that is the conflict between the way things are and the way that they should be. That's what you're feeling in that. We can call it moral distress. We can call it a tragic gap. But it's that sense that things are not the way they should be combined with a sense of powerlessness to bring those two together. There's just no way for us to be able to do that. We can't make things the way that they're supposed to be. Best definition of burnout I ever heard was responsibility without authority. That's pretty good. You've got the responsibility to do something. You've got the pressure to make it happen, but you don't have the authority, the empowerment to make it go. Moral distress. Tragic gap, right? So... This moral distress, where does it come from? How does it happen? There are two major ways. And if you can identify these in your own life, it can help you. So the first way that this moral distress happens is from constraint, all right? Constraint. We can't make things the way they should be because something is blocking us. Well, what's blocking us? Well, if you're at work, maybe it's your company policies. Maybe it's the fact that there's staffing shortages. Maybe there's resource shortages. That's certainly happening a lot today in, in, in companies. Maybe in your marriage, it's your spouse. Maybe your spouse is blocking you from being able to make things the way that they should be. Maybe it's legal issues that are blocking you, financial issues that are blocking you, the illness or the injury that we were talking about before, or the addiction that we were talking about before. Maybe it's a death that is now blocking you from being able to make things the way that they should be politics. Nature itself. If you had a house in Fort Myers last couple of weeks, you're questioning how you can possibly make things the way that they're supposed to be. And maybe it's God. Why is there evil in the world? Why does the world look this way if God really is all-powerful and all-loving? The classic question and argument. These things constrain us. We see them as constraining us, blocking us from being able to make things the way that they're supposed to be. And the other one is uncertainty, right? We don't know what the best course is. We don't know what the best decision is. We don't know what to do. Maybe it's a sense of our own constraint, of us constraining ourselves because we don't have the right answers. We don't know how to make things better. And that sense of anguish that wells up either out of constraint or uncertainty, is the moral, the, uh, moral distress 
is that tragic gap. Now, here's the interesting and fascinating thing. Your body is going to understand that it is powerless to control the limit situation long before your mind catches up and understands that. So it's your body that's going to be telling you that something is wrong before you even know it. You know, often when I, I'm talking to people and I recognize the, the symptoms of depression and I say, it sounds like you're depressed. Oh, no, I'm not depressed. Because often we equate depression with sadness and they're not feeling sad. But as I talk to them, they're angry, they're frustrated, you know, they're not sleeping well. They might be having panic attacks, you know, some of these things. They don't care about the things that they used to love doing. There's just a sense of exhaustion. It's just too much effort even to get out of bed some days. Okay? This is how depression presents long before we understand that we are depressed. When we get into these situations, these limit situations, the tragic gap, the body is going to tell us that we are there emotionally. We're going to feel the anger. We're going to feel the irritability, the frustration. You know, ask the people closest to you. They'll tell you. <laughs> if you can't figure it out, they'll tell you. The anxiety that we feel, the burnout, the lack of desire for things we used to love to do. Maybe it's even PTS, you know, post-traumatic stress that we're feeling, and certainly depression. The body's going to tell us somatically, physically, with gastrointestinal problems. I was, I was joking about the midlife crisis. Maybe we should just call it the midlife stomach ache, right? Because that's really how it's going to first present. You know, you're just not going to be right. Your stomach is going to hurt. You're going to have trouble eating, all these problems. You're going to have trouble sleeping. Your sleep is going to be disrupted. You're going to have headaches. You could have panic attacks. You can have nightmares. And then finally, it's going to seep in cognitively, where maybe you start to realize you've really grown a cynical attitude toward life. Right? Everybody is out for themselves. Nobody ever is doing anything out of goodness of their heart anymore. We grow a cynical attitude because there's nothing else. How do we defend against the way things are and how they should be? We start to question our core beliefs. We start to question our core values. We start to question our religious beliefs and values. Maybe everything that I thought I knew about God and about religion and about salvation is just wrong. Maybe I was sold a bill of goods. It's the only way that we can start to relate if we are in a position where we've got responsibility without authority. The difference between the way things are and the way that they should be. And I know these are scary symptoms. It's kind of like <laughs> those drug commercials on television with all the side effects. It's like, yeah, why would I want to take that drug? So here's all the symptoms that we're dealing with. But here's the good news. Once that we know what the cause is, we're not just angry because our spouse is an idiot, right? We're not blaming things that have nothing to do with the core cause of all of these symptoms. We start to realize, oh, I'm in a limit situation. I'm up against something that I can't control. Once we know that and we can diagnose that for ourselves, then we can treat it, quote unquote. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. The cause here of a limit situation, burnout, tragic gap, can't be controlled by definition. It can't be fixed. It can't be changed. We can't make it the way that it should be. Now, if we can't adjust a situation to the ideal that it should be, then the only thing that is left to us is to change ourselves 
to be able to live in the situation as it is. That's all that's left to us. It's kind of the secret of life, if you think about it. Can you do that? Now, we backed ourselves right into the serenity prayer, haven't we? God grant me, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's where we're at with this. But sometimes when we hear that prayer, we think that it's in some way passive. We think that it's in some way giving up. But that's not the case at all. It is not passive. We are still going to work for change, and we're going to work for that change with everything in us. In fact, someone looking from the outside in may see no difference in us before and after this transformation that we go through. We're working just as hard. Internally, it makes all the difference in the world. We know the tail is no longer wagging the dog. We know the difference, but we're still working for change. But we have learned to accept what we can't change, at least not today. I can't change it today. I'm going to accept that, right? More importantly, we're making a conscious choice to remain in the situation, whether we can change it or not. This is huge. We're not going to run from it. We're not going to distract ourselves from it. We're not going to inebriate ourselves. We're not going to change our consciousness to deal with it by not dealing with it. We're not going to do any of those things. We're going to stay present to it, to the distress, to the pain, as we learn how to accept, as we learn how to balance these things, right? Life is a limit situation. This is learning how to do life at its most basic function. There's always going to be constraints, always going to be uncertainty, always going to be conflict. So following Jesus' way is a balance of pushing against the constraints and accepting when they push back. That's what we're learning how to do. This is Jesus' way. It's a balancing, as we've said so many times in here, between the now and the not yet. Can we work with everything in us toward the not yet, anticipate the changes that we want to see in ourselves and in life around us, but never at the expense of now, never at the expense of being able to fully accept this moment, celebrate this moment, be present to this moment. It's the Hebrew bride again, right? That image just keeps coming back and back. It's why it's used throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, the now and the not yet. And in order to do this, we need to develop some moral courage. We need to be able to speak up, sometimes speak truth to power, even if it's just within our own home. We need to ask questions when we see that something is wrong, something isn't the way that it's supposed to be. We can at least ask a question. Is it at work? Is it in some other social group? Is it in our homes? Well, are we willing to ask the question? Are we willing to stand up, have the courage to push, and maybe to offend? Jesus never <laughs> shied away from offending someone if he was speaking up, if he was asking the question that needed to be asked of something that was just not right. Developing moral courage. At the same time, we're listening attentively, always actively listening, humbly listening, trying to see all sides of every situation so that not we're just not assuming that we have the right answer, but truly ask the question. 
Speak up. Ask the question. Occupy that liminal space, right? That space in the doorway, on the threshold between camps, so that you can really see where the truth is. And most importantly, to know that you did all you could to make the change that you see that is needed. I tell this to people in marriages that are failing all the time. Before you leave this marriage, make sure you did all you could. Make sure you know you did all you could to save it. Because you're going to need that on the other side. I tell it to parents of children who are addicted especially and are going off the rails and they don't know what left to do. Do they kick them out? Do they stop the support? Do they do this? I didn't say, I'm not going to tell you when, but I will tell you, you know, when everything you're doing has now become a part of the problem and no longer a part of the solution, stop it and do the next thing and the next thing after that, which will look like a pulling away of support because you need to know if the worst happens to your child, you did everything that you could. not going to take the pain away. Not going to take you out of a limit situation that that presents, but at least you will know that you never gave up, but you also didn't just enable. You need to know that you did everything that you could. And that goes for every one of us in every one of these kind of situations. Have you done everything that you could to make the situation better, even as you accept the thing that you can't change? That is so critically important for us to understand that and to know that. And along with moral courage, we need to balance that with moral resiliency, which is the accepting the limits of just living in an imperfect world, working in an imperfect system. That's it. That's who we are. That's the human condition. That's going to be the resiliency. That's where it comes from. That's how a nurse will be able to do her or his job for the next 30 or 40 years if they can get to that place of balance. Because what that does is restore our personal integrity. We now, have, we now can balance full advocacy, full action, with acceptance of our limits. I love that line from Clint Eastwood, one of the Dirty Harrys. A man's got to know his limitations. Goes for women, too. Because when we have restored our personal integrity, now we can be the same person in all the situations we find ourselves with all the people we find ourselves at all times. We don't need to go find a cause to act on in order either to learn this lesson or to follow Jesus. We're always acting out of the deepest unity, just like the woman in Las Vegas, just like Brother Lawrence in his monastery. Everything we do comes from this deep place. Jesus was driven to the wilderness to incite a limit situation. And that's what that whole story is about. He went to where he was pushed to the end. Physical exhaustion, starvation. And in that space, what he learned allowed him to come back understanding that he was one with the Father. I and the Father are one. Everything I do is in reaction to what the Father does through me. I do nothing of my own initiative. He was now that bonded because he had stayed in that space, in that limit situation. He didn't shy from it. He didn't run from it. When all pretense of personal control was gone in him, remember he told us, hey, can you make one hair on your head white or black? Can you add an inch to your height? Can you add a minute to your life? If you can't change the most basic, smallest things of life, 
what control do you really think you have? When he got to that point and realized that he didn't have that personal human control, then he was able to see and realize his identity in the power that was greater than himself, in his Father. And it's the same for each one of us. We don't need to go to the wilderness. Don't worry. You don't need to put your house up for sale and go hang out in Palm Desert or something. But contemplative practice would be one way to do it. Can you carve out this time where you step away from everything that's in your head and literally take yourself to the edge of what your egoic mind tells you about yourself? Can you turn that off? Can you spend time there? But even if you don't, you don't need to do that, ultimately. It's helpful, and we can talk about it, but all you really need to do is immerse in life. Lean into the painful situations, especially the painful situations, especially the ones that you can't control, and you know you can't control, and you can't even explain, that make no rational sense to you. Lean into those. Don't run from them, because they will teach you who you really are at the exact moment that you think everything is gone, you realize the tragic gap is your friend. Because only then you can really see what the journey is, who you really are, and what life is really all about. And in that balance comes the freedom that Jesus is talking about. The freedom to be who we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Every, every bit of it, from just the friendship, the camaraderie, the new friends that have shown up, the food, the music, everything that makes life feel meaningful again, brings fun back into the moments that we spend. But many of us are going through so much Father, we know that. We're talking about it. Help us to see those difficult times themselves, as difficult as they are, as opportunities to again practice the kind of balance that you're showing us. How we can come back to you more and more strongly, realizing who we are in you, and realizing the deep connection, relationship, and unity that we have with everyone and everything around us. Help us to move in those very mature ways, Father, through the pain, leaning on each other every moment as we go, but always directed towards you. Father, thanks for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand.